Hello, and welcome to Life Stories, a podcast where I talk to memoir writers about their lives and the art of writing memoir. I'm Ron Hogan, and my guest today is Kelly Cogswell. Her book is called Eating Fire, and it's published by the University of Minnesota Press. And it is a memoir of the formation and the early years of the Lesbian Avengers. Let's sort of just dive right into it and talk about the period right when the book starts and the Avengers form. I was there at the very first meeting, but I wasn't, wait, I would, like a founding member, not exactly a founder. So the Avengers started in 1992, which was kind of a big year, not just in queer organizing, but in the United States, because that was when Pat Buchanan at the Republican National Convention gave a huge speech, essentially announcing a war, a culture war for the soul of America and defining the enemies of the soul of America as feminists and environmentalists and, of course, homosexuals. So the fight was not just for LGBT rights, but also to be even included in the definition of what it is to be an American. So every time you stepped out on the street, you were having like more than one battle at the same time. What were some of the first battles or, or direct actions that you and the Avengers undertook during that period? Well, the very first action um, had to do with the Rainbow Curriculum, which was also related to the culture war, a big fight in New York City about something called the Children of the Rainbow Curriculum, which was supposed to teach little kids essentially that there's diversity in the world and not to beat the crap out of each other. This was following kind of horrible murders, racist murders, like in Bensonhurst. But out of the 400 and something pages, two or three well, I don't know, maybe there were like a handful of mentions of lesbian and gay people, including the book Heather Has Two Mommies, which was such, such a soft little thing. And these things were only in the additional reading material. They weren't even really, you're not teaching kids really about LGBT stuff. You're just additional reading sort of things. But because of these few mentions, the whole thing was dismissed as gay, and the Christian right really worked the whole divide and conquer sort of thing, like telling you know racial minorities, oh, these gay people want special rights, and they're not the real minorities. You're the real minorities. You're the true minorities. So the Avengers stepped into that by doing a demonstration at an elementary school in Queens where we gave out balloons saying, ask about lesbian lives, and wearing t-shirts saying, I was a lesbian child. And this not only enraged the Christian right, but it also freaked out a lot of LGBT activists that were like, oh my god, you know, they think that we're pedophiles already, you can't do this, you're not allowed to touch the issue, which in our opinion was um, a matter of internalized homophobia, like, we know we're not pedophiles, so why should we not deal with this issue? Besides that it's not just taking care of gay people when they grow up, it's a matter of there are some of us in that school that need to not be bullied, and I think because I mean, we ended up kind of losing the fight on the rainbow curriculum, even though we pushed it really hard for ages. I mean, actually, that um, that school's chancellor got pushed out because he was also involved in trying to distribute condoms to prevent HIV and stuff like that. He was actually doing really great work. But I think because we abdicated that fight, the bullying is still not not much better than it was then, I mean, 20 years ago, because, I don't know, it's still so, ta so taboo. 
And it's important to emphasize, I think, that in contrast to this modern era where the Democratic Party and liberals now very overtly make overtures to incorporate LGBT rights into their platforms and to express some sort of solidarity, however limited it may be, that back in 92, there was virtually nothing on that front, that mainstream politics was not interested in, in LGBT issues at all. No, and you have to also remember, you know, that was pre-Ellen coming out. I guess there there must have been like a few elected officials, publicly elected officials, but very, very few. Like there weren't gay television characters. You might see somebody who was gay, but all the other characters were making fun of that person. It was a different world. And now it's peculiar because you do have some legal acceptance and a lot of legal change, but in terms of us actually becoming part of the culture's imagination, like us appearing in books just as casual characters or walking down the street in a movie, we still aren't there yet. I think the culture war kind of banished us in some ways even further. Um, like it accepts you if you're going to be married, it accepts you if you're paired up, but if you're just some ordinary lesbian walking down the street looking maybe a little different than straight women, you're still not particularly acceptable or visible. And the rates of violence are still hugely high. The biggest difference is we're not talking about that. The last time we talked about a dead gay person was with Matthew Shepard, right? And we're still continuing to get killed. There were two lesbians killed in Texas just a couple of weeks ago that no one even speaks about. As much as the Rainbow Curriculum was a, a key early movement. There were also a number of homophobic killings and beatings that you write about as being really sort of crucial in mobilizing everybody to, to get vocal. Well, because of 1992 and the big Buchanan speech, it kind of launched an anti-gay movement. I mean, we're seeing it again now in places like Arizona, but then it was even bigger, wider, stronger, and every time there was like a push to get rid of laws favorable to LGBT, following these anti-gay campaigns would be a series of violence and activists being harassed and gay offices broken into and also people being killed. And out in Oregon where there was a big anti-gay campaign, some kind of neo-Nazi wannabes were harassing this African-American dyke and her friend who was a white gay disabled guy, and eventually ended up tossing a Molotov cocktail through the window of their boarding house and burning them alive. So because no one was paying attention to it, and the Avengers were here in New York, the kind of the media capital of the country, we thought, well, it's our job to bring attention to this. So we set up a shrine downtown in the village on the eve of Halloween, which is also a big gay bashing time in New York. And also then we did a march later, but as part of that, thinking about how do you transform the images of hatred and violence, one of the members suggested that we learn how to eat fire, and that image of the lesbian Avengers eating fire kind of transformed this horrible, horrible image into us trying to grapple in some way with what it means to be a lesbian, what it means to be at risk and in danger. That was something that you were grappling with at the time as well, that you write about how one of the reasons that you decided to get involved with the Lesbian Avengers is that it would internally force you to embrace the term lesbian. Oh God, yeah. It wasn't a word I was really comfortable saying. When I first came out, I didn't even really come out as being a lesbian. I just said I was bi because I thought I would kind of ease people into the idea and I was kind of easing myself into the idea. And the funny thing is, is the 
the assumption of young dykes now, they don't, they aren't comfortable with the word either, and they just feel like, oh, it was very, very popular back in the day, but now we don't use it because it's passé. But actually, it was never popular, and the reason it's not used now, I think, has something to do with the fact that it's just, it's a hard word to get it to come out of your mouth because it, there are still the stereotypes of, you know, lesbians are ugly, lesbians have no sense of humor. You know, I, I saw it even in a New York Times article a few years ago that, I mean, it, it's just, you know, the Avengers worked really, really hard not just to transform what the world thought of lesbians, but also to transform what we thought of ourselves. To share, sense, like, can you balance anger? And I think you need to be angry, angry if you're a lesbian in this world where you're kind of a target. But, you know, balancing that with, you know, humor and how do you get your message across? Not just what's the most effective message, but what's, what makes you feel good. So sometimes we, we would do things that were verging on silly, like, I don't know, I helped organize a stink bombing campaign and, um, on one occasion, one of the big um, opponents in the rainbow curriculum fight lived out in Queens. And instead of egging her house, we went and serenaded her on Valentine's Day, which was kind of funny because she thought that it was just as horrible, I think, as if we had gone there and, I don't know, attacked her viciously, like beating down her door and drug her out. But, oh my God, these lesbians are here and they're singing. It was hard. It was hard to come out. I mean, I didn't have any trouble really accepting that I like girls, but understanding what society thinks of you once you kind of accept it yourself and want to publicly be yourself, that's like a different ballgame. That's hard. You talk about becoming more comfortable in some ways with that through the actions that you were taking part in. And your personal development feels like in some ways, it's not like it's a one-on-one -on -one correlation, but because you have stayed in the same neighborhood off and on, in New, I mean, when you've lived in New York, you've lived in, in this neighborhood in the in what's now the East Village. And the East Village has changed a lot since the 90s when you were yeah. first getting involved. It definitely has been a neighborhood that has really felt the effect of gentrification. And not only gentrification, but um, the expansion of NYU to where this is practically a dorm neighborhood. So you essentially have a lot of young adults coming here and partying. And at the same time, ordinary people of all of all kinds getting priced out. I mean, this used to be a neighborhood where you would walk down the street and you would see your friends. And that would be, for me, that would be a lot of lesbians, lesbian activists, lesbian artists. But first they moved from the East Village to Williamsburg, and then they moved further out in Brooklyn, and then they ran out of land and just had to move away. So the neighborhood's changed in that way. As you write about the actions that you were involved in over the years, and we've talked about how the Avengers were able to rally around the notion of transforming not just the position of lesbians in the culture, but transforming lesbians' lives from within. As much as you guys were able to rally around that point, you write very frankly about the other tensions that ultimately tore the group apart from within around issues of race and class and, and other categories. Yeah, the Avengers ended badly, in New York anyway. I should mention that the Avengers actually struck a chord in the U.S. and across and with lesbians pretty much across the world so that there was a big march in 1993 in Washington that we used to recruit other lesbian Avengers, and there ended up being 60 chapters across the world, including like a huge one in London and in Australia and in other places in the U.S. But the New York Avengers, we discovered that we were not immune to the other forces, the other problems 
and society outside of us, and especially in New York, um, the same kind of infighting and divide and conquer in New York that kind of led to the end of the Rainbow Curriculum fight, we had to deal with in the Avengers themselves. There was a moment kind of when questions of race came up. One of the peculiar things about race is that if you don't mention it, Things can kind of motor along for a while, but as soon as you even say the word race, all of a sudden you look around and like, oh, I'm white and you're black and you're Latino, and it's, and you become conscious of that. And Americans have a really, really hard time dealing with that in general. And in New York in the early 90s, it was fierce. But also, it seems like we're, we're more, adept at just pointing fingers and identifying problems of race and racism without being able to figure out, well, how do you fix those problems? And the Avengers kind of got mired in talking about race and racism, and especially just kind of the racial makeup of the group. Like, it was mostly white, but it was kind of peculiar in a way. It was mostly white, but it had many Latinos and African Americans and a few Asian people who actually played really, really important roles, like Anasimo, a Latino, was a co-founder of the group, and uh, Marlene Colburn was one of the main spokespeople and kind of, kind of also interacted with chapters. Um, I mean, I could name a bunch of other people, but um, there wasn't a parody with like what the demographics of the city would be. So what do you do about that? How do you attract more people of color? It, it's actually quite difficult to say, well, do you just recruit people? Hey, you're black, come and join our group so we're not so white. I mean, that's offensive and kind of weird. I think where we failed is is thinking, okay, well, what are we? We're a direct action group. Okay, well, then we should in some way solve this problem by asking ourselves, well, are the actions that we're doing serving uh, lesbian communities of color instead of just saying, well, we want more members of color. Well, why? So we don't feel so racist? Like, why do we want that diversity? Instead of saying, well, how do we serve these communities that maybe aren't getting their voices heard? How do we invite them to get their voices heard even if they don't want to be lesbian Avengers? It seems that we just don't, we often don't ask the right questions. Like, what is the goal of integration? Just so that we can say we're integrated? Or so that people can get their voices heard, people, you know, people's issues can get out there. One of the projects that you ended up launching after the implosion of, of the Avengers, you and your partner launched a website called The Gully, which allowed you to speak out on a wide range of issues and not confine yourself to, to LGBT issues. But you were talking about a lot of other different things as they were coming up in your, in your life or you were witnessing them. Yeah, it was really cool, like right at the beginning of the internet becoming a popular thing and not just something a few people did in universities. It had a huge potential to connect people horizontally, like you could actually communicate with people in Latin America or Africa and feel like you were all kind of on the same footing. And also it was easier to find an audience because you were, we were beginning to do something new, which was we ended up saying that our magazine was offering queer views on everything. What we really wanted to think is how it all fit together. Like, what are the preconditions of an LGBT movement? Like in a place like Guatemala, they were having some really important elections right then, and the lesbians that we were talked to were like, well, what happens now depends a lot on who gets elected, because the main guy they thought was going to get elected was a very right-wing person that they figured would roll back new freedoms that they had. Like, it was... Freedom of speech was like really important, freedom to assembly, like all of these things we take for granted you actually have to have before you can get popular movements. 
before you can like launch social change. So you can't really just talk about gay rights in some parts of the world because how can you get that if you don't have the right to even talk about what it means to be gay? Or if you don't have the right with your 10 friends to go out on the street and hold a demo because you all end up in jail. It's like, how does this stuff fit together? How does race fit together with sexual identity and how does class fit together with race? And um, I think it's important, it was important then, it's still important to think about how all this stuff fits together because we're not, you can't divide people into their little bits and pieces and you can't really divide societies that way either. I mean, you have to divide things to think about them, but it's important to remember that they're kind of inseparable. That's, I end up writing a lot about identity politics. I kind of start the book by talking about the lesbian Avengers, my life as a lesbian Avenger, but then I kind of spend the rest of the time unraveling, well, what is a lesbian anyway, like thinking about identity politics and thinking about avenging and what does, how does social change work anyway on the big scale and on the little scale. And that magazine was an, was an amazing opportunity to think about those things and begin to think about those things and ask other people kind of, well, what do you think about them? With all that experience behind you in dealing with these issues as a writer and as an activist, you know, when you look at a situation, say, like, contemporary Russia. Yeah, Russia. Russia is, um, well, they briefly gave democracy a go. I don't, I don't even know if people are even comfortable using the word democracy anymore. The left kind of feels like, oh, the whole word has been debased. But I don't know, what other word are you supposed to use for that collection of rights? I don't know. But Mr. Putin is kind of rolling back rights as fast as he can, and LGBT people are right now the most visible victims of his shifting in social policies. I mean, they did pass overtly anti-gay laws where you're not allowed to be it, you're not allowed to say it. And there are huge amounts of LGBT people fleeing that country and ending up in New York, among other places. Pussy Riot was visible, well, remains visible, and they were cool because, or are cool, they're kind of back in action. I'm working on not just feminist issues, but LGBT issues. I mean, it's just, it's just so clear there that, I mean, they actually passed a law saying that you're not allowed to say the words. And if you say the words, then you're advocating for this lifestyle, and then you should be in jail. And we can take your children, and you have no rights as a citizen. You're not a human being. Russian prisons are horrible. I mean, as much as they talk about U.S. prisons, which some of them are pretty awful, compared to Russian prisons, like, you can't even imagine. But it's so clear from Russia that all of this stuff fits together. And if you're smart and you're a gay person, you won't be satisfied with same-sex marriage. You will keep an eye on society because not only is it the key to progress, it's also the key to rights being rolled back. And history tells us nothing if not that there's a certain fragility to progress and it kind of goes up and down more than it goes in that nice, comfortable arc with a big pot of gold at the end of it. Now, things have gone up in some ways in, in recent years, thinking particularly of, you know, a couple more states have gotten on board with same-sex marriage. But as you're saying, it's not a simple upward curve that there, you know, there are setbacks as well. For every advance, it, there is a backlash in some states, especially more conservative states. I think eventually it looks as if there will be same-sex marriage across the U.S. because that just seems to be the that just seems, seems to be the movement of things but that doesn't necessarily go hand in hand with 
better lives for LGBT people. Um, having more rights is good. It's important to kind of get your advances codified into laws. But I think we're also seeing the limits of what legal change can do for you. I mean, if you just look at the history of civil rights for African Americans in this country, most of the laws got changed to give equality, voting rights, integration, employment, many, many protections, many, many changes. But what do you do with this fundamental American resistance to accepting other humans as equal or the same as you, whether it's a question of race and ethnicity or language or sexual identity? Like, what happens when you get your legal advances but you find out that you didn't win the whole thing? And I think that gay people are not grappling with that in a way because of how things have evolved. There's also a tension between the big national organizations, which a lot of activists call Gay Inc., and are they compromising in useful ways or are they selling out? What happens to your culture? Because there is an LGBT culture. What happens to your culture when you're somewhat accepted? Do you end up choking on the acceptance when you find out that, you know, like you, you want it but you don't quite get it? Because there is a certain kind of liberation when you know they don't want you and you're like, fuck it. And then you go off and you do your own thing and you think, well, that's not so bad. You know, I can make a good life for myself. I can have, you know, is a certain sort of freedom. I don't have the burden of straight society because when it comes down to it, a lot of straight people are not so happy with what they're stuck with. Like my mother and her marriage, I think. My mother hates me being a lesbian, but um, I think sometimes when I'm doing this work that I'm actually working to liberate her because she was not somebody who was meant to be married and have children. She thought she wanted that, but she hated it and told us so, which was kind of painful, but, you know, there you are. And I think that there is also a tension between in movements, between equality movements and liberation movements, and the LGBT movement kind of shifted from the liberation of the 60s and 70s. And by the time the, the mid-90s rolled around and the whole country got more um, conservative, our community, too, got more conservative and shifted to an almost exclusively equality-based movement, which, I mean, it's obviously useful, but is that what we really need in the long term to create real social change? Yeah, and ultimately leads to things like spending nearly a year trying to figure out how not to, to have to not be friends with Alec Baldwin anymore, for example, <laughs> you know, on, on like Glad's part or something like that. I mean, how many times did we have to go through that cycle where it's like, you know, he would say these things and... He just doesn't understand. And gay rights organizations, yeah, <laughs> would be like... He well, just needs we'll to just, be educated we'll a little more. just to work with him. <laughs> yeah, I don't know, people like that. I think, I don't know, I, what do you do with people like that? I think you mostly just have to ignore them. Like, you say one or two things, and then you ignore them. People spend a lot of time thinking about that and, you know, writing blog posts and tweeting and not so much attention to the people that are doing stuff right in their own neck of the woods that they could actually affect you know, like their own schools, like who's teaching at your schools and how are they treating your kids and and what church do you have in the neighborhood that's gay-friendly and which ones hate your guts, which ones are handing out condoms and which ones are saying there aren't, there's no AIDS in my church, you know, which is always a big fat lie. I mean, we could be doing a lot of things that we actually have control over instead of, you know, worrying about what the last famous person said. <laughs> is that a part of what made this 
an opportune moment for you to step back and, and tell your story? Yeah, partly. I was thinking about how there was so little, I mean, there were a, several things came into play. Um, one of them is the, just being aware of how little activism that there was. And there seemed to be a big gap. Um, when the adventure started, we were lucky to have people with a lot of experience. They knew how to do every aspect of activism, which is actually, I mean, it has cer a certain skill set. You have to know how to organize a demo. What do you do when you get to the street? Do you just have signs? <laughs> That's kind of what people think now, where you make a sign and you walk around in a circle in the middle of the street. You won't get very far with that. There's pretty sophisticated media stuff that goes on. You need to know your your rights in terms of like you stepping out onto that sidewalk. You need to know what the local laws are about how you hold a demo. You need to know how far you can push the cops and even how to talk to them. Um, how to get media attention, I think I said that already. Um, but yeah, like one of the first actions that you had a sort of leadership role in afterwards that you come out of it and your, your partners are like, you idiot, you didn't have an exit strategy. <laughs> what were you thinking? I know. It's funny that I was, I ended up being the one writing this book because I was actually, I was not a very, I love the lesbian Avengers, at least in the beginning. I got a lot out of it. And then I was also totally traumatized by the ending of it. But um, I was just learning all that stuff. And I kind of didn't understand until pretty late that really like there's skills like these people are very <laughs> they have a lot to share and i could have learned a lot more than i did but the avengers also were able to spread because they actually wrote guidebooks and ha and handbooks and this is how you do it i mean we have that stuff online and, and one of the first things i did when i started the project documenting the lesbian avengers was think oh my god i can just put this stuff online and then people will know how to hold a demo and how to and how to even think about um getting a clear message and clear images and all that stuff also, one of the reasons that I ended up doing that project was partly because I just felt like we had lost the ability to even hold a demo. Kind of after the Avengers and after ACT UP, there wasn't much behind us. And then in civil society in general, it's not like there were women on the street. There was very, very little direct action, which I think is always an important tool for everybody. Everybody should kind of know how it works. So 20 years after the Avengers, I was living in France with my girlfriend Anna, and somebody asked us to go to a conference and talk about the Avengers, and so we're kind of asking each other, what year did this happen, and what year did that happen, and we didn't know. And so I went online to look, and there was almost nothing about the Avengers, and what there was was wrong. And it was heartbreaking and disturbing, I guess, to realize that something that, not just something I had been a part of, but there were 60 chapters worldwide, and we did huge marches that mobilized 20,000 lesbians at a time. I mean, these are huge, huge, huge marches. And we were in the newspapers and we were on the covers of magazines. And how could we be so completely and utterly erased? And I was thinking, well, do we have to start all over again? Because there also, there's, there's still very little visibility of lesbians in terms of like the culture. Like we aren't in books, we aren't in movies, we're barely in TV shows. And if we are, we're peculiar, like we're some straight person's idea of what a lesbian is. So I thought, well, either we have to start a new movement again, and I'm tired, and I don't want to do that again. I did that once already. Or I could just write about it, kind of like an arm got, or like a branch got chopped off of a tree, like thinking, well, what would happen if I tried to regraft that branch onto our common history? What would happen? I mean, you can't go back in history. You can't say, okay, well, let's do the Avengers again. But what happens if people at least know that the lesbian Avengers existed and so many people were involved and... I know. So, so part of it was intellectually thinking, well, that would be interesting. Can you kind of reintroduce something into history? And, and whether it's that, you know, a new generation of lesbian activists 
you know, is inspired by the model of the Avengers or even activists in a different realm, like, say, Occupy, for example, have the template of what the Avengers were able to accomplish for their issue. Exactly, yeah. yeah. And also, I don't think we think, well, how does it work? How does, does social change happen? Growing up, I never, ever thought, I mean, I would see these things just changing and never, never thought, well, how does it happen? I wrote in the book, and this may sound ridiculous, but I just kind of thought, you know, Martin Luther King gave a speech, and then the country changed. And then in Black History Month, I think actually we get the same impression, because all we see on TV is the Martin Luther King speech over and over and over again, and a few, few moments in the history of that civil rights movement. And we don't understand how many people it takes, not just in movements, but every day. Like, for gay people, it's like, every time you come out, you're creating a little bit of change. You know, how many ways are there to resist in this world that we're in, whether we like it or not? Um, so it's kind of thinking about just how, do, how does all of that work? On the one hand, that feels like an awesome responsibility. I mean, like, how do you constantly live your life in resistance to hegemony? But on the other, <laughs> on the other hand, it's, it's, it sort of feels like it might have a profoundly liberating aspect to it. I guess some people are not able to not do it because you just can't take it. You hate being stuck in a little box. You hate, you, you just feel, you feel very constrained. It's like wearing something that's too tight and you're always scratching at it. And some people can kind of adopt their bodies to be in this tight little place that they find themselves wedged in, but other people can't. And those of us that have allergies to society, I guess, are the ones that are always coming out and always saying, you know, we can do better. Um, other people, you know, like they can, they can get, they can experience homophobia or classism or racism or whatever it is and just kind of shrug it off and let it go. And the rest of us were like, ah, you know, you have to say something about it. There are times though, I mean, I, I made a decision early on that I would come out. I mean, and you'd never come out once. You come out like a hundred times, like a hundred times a week you come out because there's always someone assuming you're straight or making gay jokes around you. And so I generally try to be out. But there are sometimes, like when I've been on vacation, I was on vacation and, and I went to Italy with my girlfriend's mom and it was hard enough to deal with her. And then I was out sometimes, but to be out in foreign languages, like there were times when I'm like, okay, just assume that I'm straight. I don't care, whatever. <laughs> I'll, I'll, you know, today's Wednesday. I'm taking Wednesday off. Um, the world can get by without me. But I mean, people like people like me or that that do have a thin skin, you do kind of get burnt out and and wish you could just. Well, I mean, we fled to France. I mean, what? <laughs> I'm not sure that was far enough, but uh, well, that's one of the, I was talking to a friend of mine. It's one of the pleasures of being foreign is that you just kind of feel like, what is it that they say? Not my circus, not my monkeys. You know, like they have their own problems. Like let them deal with their own homophobia and their own classism and their own racism and their own problem with immigrants. But after you, after we lived in France for a while, then you feel like oh, God, this is my country, this is my neighborhood, you have to start getting involved again. You talk about that process of starting to care really passionately about what was going on in France when you lived there. Yeah, I mean, it was nice in the beginning when I didn't speak the language because I didn't have to pay attention. You would just hear the sounds of human voices, and it was kind of like music. And so you could, you know, go and sit in the cafe and, and have your glass of wine and ignore what was happening. I couldn't read the newspapers. I didn't know what was going on. Didn't want to know what was going on. But, you know, once you start to hear what people are saying in the booth behind you, you're like, oh my God. So how long have you been back in, in the States now? Four years, something like that. We're hoping to go back for a little while. 
we didn't mean to stay so long, but we had kind of family disasters. Anna's mom had a stroke, and then her brother got sick, and, and then we had problems with this building. <laughs> had to repair the roof. We had to get evacuated because there was a gas leak in the building. So we can't rent to anybody. We can't sublet until, you know, the building is safe and they have something to cook on. Right now we're cooking on a hot plate. So. <laughs> and apart from working on eating fire for the last couple of years, what are you up to these days? I'm doing some freelance journalism work and beginning to do some audio. Which it's kind of great to hear the sounds of people's voices. And I have very um, happy memories as a kid. Having a little transistor radio, I was supposed to be asleep, but I would take the transistor radio and bury myself under the covers and listen to old radio shows. Also kind of thinking about what to do next in terms of a book, because I don't want to go, I don't want to write another memoir, because I think one memoir is plenty for me, <laughs> but uh, maybe maybe I'll take suggestions. Um, I have like half of a mystery finished, and then I was thinking about a non-fiction book but um, not a memoir. I don't know, what can you do next after a memoir if you don't want to do a memoir? Because they say you're supposed to like stick to the same thing or you'll lose your audience, but this book is so peculiar because it, it was actually, I had wanted to write a popular history of the Lesbian Avengers, but I couldn't sell it, and somebody was like, oh, I would have I definitely taken this if only it was a memoir. So I wrote a memoir. And then they didn't. <laughs> of, course, of course they didn't take it. Of course they didn't take it. I was pissed. I was really pissed. But um, but I think, you know, it inspired a good book, a useful book. Yeah, but now what do I do? Well, for right now, thanks to the University of Minnesota Press, there is Eating Fire. It's Kelly Cogswell's story of her life as a lesbian Avenger. It's a really great story. I hope you'll check it out. I'm Ron Hogan, and you've been listening to Life Stories. If you're subscribed to us through iTunes, that's fantastic. If you're not subscribed to the podcast on iTunes, it's very easy to do, and then you won't miss another episode. When you do subscribe, I hope you might rate and review the podcast, because it just makes it a little bit more visible and easier for other people to find. So thanks for listening to us today, and I hope I'll see you again for another episode soon. Take care.